Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Labour Party conference and how Keir Starmer's speech was. And you ask us, are the Conservatives really less divided than the other parties? So we've all crawled in to the office after a few days at Labour Party conference. So you're lucky to be listening to us at all. <laughs> but we thought we'd talk a little bit about how we found the conference this year, given there wasn't one last year. Alva, how was it for you? You know, I had a lovely time. I wasn't really, I mean, whisper it, I wasn't really looking forward to it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I just thought it was going to be exhausting. But then the second we arrived, Stephen and I had a noticeable spring in our steps after seeing how nice the conference hotel was that the New Statesman kindly put us up in. So after that, it started on a good note. And then I, I it was actually just lovely to bump into so many New Statesman readers and listeners. I've only had one conference at the at the New Statesman, and that was years ago. Well, two years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was nice to it was really, really nice to to meet our listeners and readers in person and then also to do the live podcast was fun too. Yeah, I mean the hotel was a revelation, I think, in all my seven years at the New Statesman, it was definitely the nicest one. Although having said that, it was a low bar because when I used to work for Total Politics, which is my job before before coming to the New Statesman, they once put me up in a twelve bed dorm. <laughs> <laughs> So my like little blazer was hanging at the edge of this like bunk bed. <laughs> I would never do that with you soon, no matter how much I love you. <laughs> I realised not having Lib Dem conferences are kind of like warming up, getting into the conference mood. It was just like, oh, this one's like so much, so much more hard work. There, yeah, you know. But actually, I know this reflects poorly on me. But on Friday, when they kind of started to do the kind of behind the scenes arm twisting over. Chulo, which is the meeting of the affiliated unions, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten how enjoyable this is. We're adding value. And then, yeah, because one of the joys of covering conference at the NS is the sort of kind of feeling of mystery when you open the door to your hotel room of just like, am I going to be, as I once had one year here, a bunk bed? Um, <laughs> and it was a problem that the first night I slept, woke up, hit my head, thought, oh, it's fine, I'll sleep on the top deck next time, woke up, hit my head, <laughs> realised, oh, this is just not going to be a fun a fun conference for me. Um, but it was, yeah, we are in a palace. It was amazing. No idea how that happened, but I'm And I had a, a morning swim in the hotel pool that I keep telling everyone about, a New Statesman-funded swim at conference. Incredible. So I'm, I'm feeling very smug about it. But I think also um, another thing that w- was good about this conference is that having read 
Patrick Maguire, formerly of this parish, and Gabriel Pogren's book. I think one of the things that really stood out to me at the time was their coverage of the 2019 conference and basically how much stuff was going on at the very top, like in, in the inner circle of the Corbyn project. Everything was kind of falling apart, um, often in response to to things happening at conference, you know, so for example, the protesters hanging around outside the conference centre, there was a big bust up between Corbyn and his spokesperson over their statement around that because the his spokesperson had sort of condemned the protesters and Corbyn himself wasn't happy about it. There were all these things happening with Carrie Murphy as well. And I was so struck reading that account that we didn't pick up on it. And actually, basically, no one in the media did. And so I kind of went into this one thinking, you know, this is a, such an intense time for parties. They have so much riding on this. They're all exhausted. You can tell in the days beforehand, seeing these like these poor advisors just looking absolutely dead and like having so much riding on their boss's speeches and, the you know, rolling the pitch for them beforehand. I just thought there, there's definitely going to be stuff going on behind the scenes and the challenge is whether we can discover what it is. And so I'm pleased that we did, actually. I mean, there's the, you know, the Rainer and and Keir Starmer stuff that Stephen has done in his column, but then also the all of the Ed Miliband tensions. I'm pleased that actually, given how busy conference is, that we managed to capture some of that. Listeners can read the piece about Ed Miliband and everyone falling out with him on the New Statesman website. Yeah, it did feel nice that, I mean, the weird thing about most conferences is you often feel like you're in the wrong place. In 2019, I basically was at conference, but not at conference because of the tight turnaround to, on the embargo on David Cameron's book. So I would have this thing where an MP would, would bump into me. They'd go, how do you think it's going? And I'd go, well, you know, he hasn't won a majority, but he thinks he can get a deal with these Lib Dems. So, you know, who knows? It could could work out for him. And then they would tell me something and I'd think, well, I should probably do something with that information, but I have still got 400 pages to go. And so it was, yeah, it was a good, a good conference uh, for us, but well, but you know, enough about you know, our fun time. How do we think it went for the Labour Party? I suppose what we haven't spoken about since doing our live podcast from, from the conference, it was Keir Starmer's speech. So should we focus on how we think that went and how then it tied into to the rest of the conference because it was bumpy you know you, you had the what we t- talked about on the last podcast you had the sort of internal wrangling over the rule changes and then you had Andy McDonald's resignation and all of these MPs well you know all these shadow cabinet members being asked about Angela Rayner's comments calling the conservatives scum you know, it looked like a messy conference. It looked really difficult for Keir Starmer. Actually, none of that stuff was <laughs> really cutting through the, to the public because of the f- fuel crisis. So they almost got away with it, I think, in terms of the those kind of splits and and, and the messiness. Um, but still, it meant that a lot was riding on his speech. Um, even more was riding on his speech than already was was the case, having not been able to really introduce himself to the public during the pandemic and everyone saying that he had to show that Labour has a vision and that he can sort of hang all of the things that they'd already announced on, on a frame that told a story about his leadership. So he was under pressure. And I think the consensus was that he managed to deliver an impressive speech. There's been some snap polling out. I don't know how much you really want to read into that kind of thing, but that shows that the people who were polled found it, you know, had positive responses to it. And actually, you know, from watching it in the hall, which is not representative of how most viewers would see the speech, it went down quite well. 
it was quite moving. So one of the criticisms of Starmer has been that he's quite wooden and robotic and he hadn't sort of spoken enough about his backstory and his sort of emotional connection to, to the United Kingdom. And I actually thought that he really hit the nail on the head with the parts about his family. There was a tear in my eye when he was talking about his mother's illness. And actually, I turned around and, you know, there were some like other grizzled old hacks, not not, not calling myself a grizzled old hack, who were, one of them was like dabbing his eyes with a handkerchief. So I thought, you know, clearly there was something that moved people in that in that section. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was probably one of the most impressive leader speeches that I've seen at a conference, although it was then followed by a very lengthy passage of sort of vague pledges that was probably unnecessary. What did you think? So I similarly watched it in the hall and had the privilege of being just a row in front of the first heckler. So the woman who stood up and sang, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, right as Starmer started speaking, was right behind me. And then she was swiftly escorted out of the room. Well, because also because of the way we were covering it, we knew quite quickly that that I would be doing something on the heckling in particular. So I think I was in particular attuned to the the ructions in the hall, and you could see quite a few people dotted around holding their red cards. So people outside the conference centre had been handing out these just like bits of A4 red card and saying, you know, give Keir Starmer the red card. And it's a sort of way of indicating that you're from the left of the Labour Party and you're unhappy with Keir Starmer. So you could see how many of them there were from where I was on the balcony. You could see all these hecklers dotting, dotted around. And I felt quite tuned into the way... It, it looked a little bit ropey at some points as to whether he'd be able to keep it going. It did. I mean, I think that he defeated them with the endless stream of pledges. I think you know, <laughs> that I just at a certain point, they just kind of stopped bothering. <laughs> but but I think in particular at the start, there there were quite a few heckles on different things, which isn't, as you say, representative because on camera, it's exactly like Prime Minister's questions. When you're in the chamber, you can hear how distracting it is. And often, you know, if it's a good heckle, how undermining it is for the leader, but they don't need to worry about it because the sound is barely being picked up on camera. And if you keep going, then it will be basically imperceptible. But in the room, you know, there were heckles over Brexit, chants about Jeremy Corbyn, loads of £15 minimum wage chants referring to Andy McDonald's resignation, which has sort of, you know, been a lightning rod for all of these frustrations on the left of the party. There was, and there was just one moment where you could also see all the camera crews zooming in on one woman heckler who was sitting right behind the shadow cabinet and... At that point, kind of, Keir Starmer couldn't really keep going. And I think everyone, I was sitting beside lots of Labour advisors and they were all looking quite stressed out because it did seem like maybe he wouldn't be able to deliver it. I think in in practice, that's a footnote to the, to the speech because it's not how it came across on TV. But it was really a very physical manifestation of those divisions that are still there in the party even if it's a minority of people and it was a minority in the room and every time they heckled mostly people just gave Keir Starmer a big round of applause whatever he said Um, and they kind of helped him out because the longer they applauded the more time security had to get the hecklers out of the room even though that was a footnote I was very tuned into that I also did think it was quite moving I think that 
The only other thing I would just say is that it was because it was so long, it was difficult to identify the top lines, basically, because it was, you know, the personal touch. And I think one of the lines they actually wanted out of it was, you know, Keir Starmer introduces himself to the public and says quite personal stuff about his mother. I think that in itself was meant to be the news. But there were also so many policy commitments and it wasn't really clear to me whether the focus should be on the Green New Deal pledges or the mental health hubs or on home insulation or on on any of the other things or even whether it should be on this this big moment where Keir Starmer was defending Labour's record from government and sort of listing the achievements of the Blair era and he ended on and a national minimum wage and everyone just stood up and you know it was a standing standing ovation like huge cheers I think partly because people had zoned out and just heard something about a minimum wage definitely the people beside me didn't know what they were clapping for and I'm certainly I don't think we're really <laughs> I think when they realized it was about the Blair era we're, we're not super happy that they'd been standing up but definitely there was this big moment sort of championing the achievements of the previous Labour government, which was quite an achievement, I think, for that conference to as a message to send out. But yeah, it meant that just there was so much going on that I don't really know what our top line is from it and or even what bit we should be be focusing on, which is maybe not ideal. Yeah, so I, I never watch the conference speak from the hall anymore after the Theresa May incident. Because in the hall, it was so in, yeah, it was it was very moving. Um, minister who desperately wanted her gone turned to me after and said that was a disaster. Yeah, the country will have a well of sympathy, and you really did. It genuinely, it was you know you 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 wanted her to finish, and at the end, you kind of almost felt this sense of shared relief in the fact she had got through this. And essentially, the hall's always a bit weird. Watching it on TV. It was really interesting because watching on TV, the visual of the heckles was like a few isolated people and then these sort of wall of adulation of people standing up to clap. And then watching the six and the ten and listening to the, the, the music radio, that was again the image that came through. You know, you can, you can read my slightly more critical bits about the fact that I think the speech was too long on the NS website. But the interesting thing about watching the clips on TV is they essentially got the thing they wanted, right, which was... Keir talking about the fact he was a, you know, the fact he's from, you know, a normal background, he's not a professional politician. Keir doing the, the the visual of, yeah, there are divisions, but I'm clearly in charge because of these kind of huge walls of people standing up and clapping. And then the kind of like them going, and he announced loads of policies, i.e. them getting to tick the box of going, oh, look, we, we have them. I still think that, yeah, for reasons, again, people can read in more detail, they shouldn't have had that extra section, not least because... The bit about mental health, which is clearly something that is really important to him personally. Yeah, it's something when, you know, I was on the road with him for this piece I wrote for the NS a couple of weeks ago. He was clearly very moved by a session he'd had a couple of days before with some adolescents. He was very moved by this alternative provision at this garden centre that we visited. And, OK, maybe next year they'll be in a really bad position and they'll be at the stage where they have to be like, deploy the wife! You know, you know when a leader's in a lot of trouble and they like we allowed the wife to introduce him and go, he may be fifteen points down in the polls, but I'd I'd hit it. And everyone goes, Ah, humanized, <laughs> humanized. But that's, 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 but yeah, it happens. Like I'm not saying it's not grim, but it happens and it is a guaranteed way to you know, it's like leadership flagging, wheel out the wife. You we all know it's true, right? But I think what they ought to hope their plan A for the conference speech next year is just a very personal Keir talking about why it's why mental health is the great health 
unaddressed health challenge, 20 short minutes of him being quite warm, rather than it being shunted in this speech, which I do think speaks to that big question mark of why can't this Labour Party find a theme? But yeah, watching it on the 6 and then watching it on the 10 before I went on Newsnight, I was sitting there thinking, you know, like, if Deborah Matteson and, and Matthew Doyle, the communication, the strategy director and the communications director, especially, had sat there scripting their ideal 10 o'clock, I think they would have been like, no, no, no. We can't have that bit. That's too much. We've got to leave a little bit on the table. So in terms of the sort of media hits that matter, it was clearly mission accomplished. But I do, I do think the other interesting thing is they have chosen to really make a virtue of the fact that he has not been in politics very long. Boris has basically been in politics forever. Yeah, he was at the DPP, which does mean, which you know, could work out brilliantly for them. But it does mean very much making his tenure and every decision he made at the Crown Prosecution Service a key. That will be a key part of the election. That is, you know, it's a call which could pay off for them. But it's it's also it's not a call without risks. Yeah, no, I agree, and and yeah, it makes it <laughs> it makes his past career and life fair game right so that is always a risk with any politician who wants to lean on those kind of things the contrast that he drew between himself and boris johnson i thought was really well done they'd had trouble during the conference with this with these scum comments and i'd noticed mps on you know on the record on on fringe panels and things trying to sound conciliatory towards the tories saying things like we don't think they're evil people they just don't understand how you know the people live in x or whatever and you know there was quite a lot of obviously concerted messaging like that so Keir Starmer's bit about you know I don't think he's a bad person I just think he's a trivial person was obviously a sort of way of trying to draw a line under the scum stuff and Stephen you had your really interesting sort of nugget that this this idea of Boris Johnson being a one-trick pony has come up in Downing Street's own polling and it's something that they know is a vulnerability and clearly, you know, Keir Starmer's team knew this too. So he used that in his in his line, you know, he's he's a one-trick pony who's performed his last trick or whatever it was. So I thought that that bit was really deftly done. But the idea of it not being a particularly coherent sort of message, I think, is right with all the pledges that clashed with. Because I thought what was really different about the speech, not only was he championing the the uh, achievements of the new Labour years, which I, I really actually haven't seen at party conference ever, because I only started when Ed Miliband was Labour leader. Not only did he do that, but he also sort of put forward an optimistic vision for the country. And it was this idea that, OK, you know, the government's sort of holding back our potential, but, we're, you know, we're a great country with all of these interesting things going on with hydrogen and deep sea turbines and robots and things. But that kind of jarred with with some of the 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 policy areas that he was talking about, you know, sort of um, mental health services being in such disarray and stuff. So it didn't it didn't all hang together, I thought. And so that that, again, I think shows perhaps an underlying lack of confidence in what they're actually trying to say. I think I think the optimism is a really important thing and that they they're on the right track, but they probably need to be even more confident about that. One last vulnerability I thought was was in one of the heckles, one of the earlier heckles, which was it was your Brexit policy. And so I think he needs to be quite careful with this junking of the last manifesto and, you know, saying everything's changed. He campaigned on that manifesto and he was instrumental in that Brexit policy that was so disastrous in 2019. He has been asked about that in interviews since the speech. He had a good message. The make Brexit work slogan was good. So if they can flesh that out a bit more, perhaps that can be a good riposte to those kind of criticisms. Yeah, I think um, probably that it is a bit of a mixed picture, but it shows a stride in the right direction. 
I think that one of Keir Starmer's speechwriters must have a slightly literary bent because I think, uh, as you were saying, Stephen, I think they they struggled to pick a theme, but it wasn't as though there weren't themes there. There were just sort of a lot of them, but one of them was sort of tool-making that, that ran through the speech. And some bits, there were highlights and lowlights, I thought, in that approach. So the highlight was definitely a rare joke from Keir Starmer. You know, his, you know my father was a tool-maker, Although in a way, so was Boris Johnson's <laughs> father. <laughs> and then the low light I thought was when when he started to explain the etymology of heirloom <laughs> and loom being an ancient yeah. Our producer is just looking baffled. <laughs> explaining how loom is another, you know, etymologically come you know, comes from the same root as tool, or is an, an another word for tool. And um, I just thought, I think everyone in the room thought, what? <laughs> but I think some someone in his team clearly clearly liked weaving this theme of tool making through the through the speech and and you know, then he outlined his four tools for for the future, care, security. I'm not sure if I remember the other two. Work in no, not inequality. <laughs> inequality is one of my best tools. I think it's work, care, equality, security. Yeah. Seems mm-hmm. legit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it does but, speak to the problem. Then we're all like, yeah, it seems like, yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah, and I also think that those things should always come in threes. Rather, I think four is too many. Too many people. Tools. People won't remember them. That was interesting because actually, alongside everything else, I think that political leaders do have grand aspirations for their speeches in terms of wanting them to be these like sort of dense literary texts that you know have multiple resonances and beautiful beautiful analogies and these lovely themes woven through them i just think that they should have killed their darlings with the heirloom thing no one would have missed it but also i think that Again, there was an early theme around crime, which was quite interesting, sort of striking a slightly more authoritarian tone, but really making a sort of labour case against crime. Doreen Lawrence introduced the speech. A lot of, you know, as you were saying, Stephen, a lot around Keir Starmer sort of focusing on his record as a lawyer and prosecuting criminals and so on. And I think that 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 was drawn out quite successfully because it wouldn't necessarily be palatable to everyone in the room, to, to all Labour members. But he was taking quite a tough line on crime, but in quite compassionate language, talking about the victims of crime. But I don't think that those angles really had much of a look in because part two of the speech didn't really involve that anymore. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
And now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask, Ask Us. Us. Our question today is: Both Labour activists and Lib Dem activists say on Twitter and in person, "Our biggest issue is we are two parties in one," whereas the Tories, on the whole, sing from the same hymn book. Is this true? If it is true, why is it that the Tories are different in this respect? If it's not true, what do the Tories do differently that convince outsiders that they're one party? I, I always worry when the answer is very simple. Maybe I'm just missing something here. I don't think it is true, right? We can name them, and indeed, you know, if if you like very long essays by political philosophers and there's nothing wrong with that there are lots of pieces in the new statesman about the various strands of conservative thought indeed about the various strands in liberal thought various strands in in conservative thought i mean actually in terms of ideological real estate the lib dems are actually far and away the smallest of the parties in every sense no offense lads um <laughs> but the crucial difference is in the conservative rule book as well as being surprisingly hard to find you really do have to get a trick a conservative press officer into giving you a copy essentially every clause has an asterisk being like unless the mps really want it in which case they can throw these rules out at any time um they don't have any internal democracy so the only time that a split bursts into the open is when it sufficiently divides the parliamentary party the members they have more power of deselection uh, than labor members but it's it's a very blunt power the lib dems are incredibly democratic and have their very sort of slightly Byzantine process, which again means one of the reasons why their conference is in some ways the most fun to cover is, right, is the, the fight over party direction is right out there in front there on the conference floor. And the Labour Party, of course, has its kind of not much democracy, but my God, they have a lot of internal elections and a lot of, you know, wrangling about the conference floor, wrangling in NEC meetings, wrangling in Tudor, wrangling in compositing meetings, using the rule book to whack one each other over the head and then loudly pretending that this never... I mean, what I did love about this conference was um, a literal journalist going, <laughs> Keir Starmer's grubby rulemaking. Yada, yada. And, it's like, and I actually, I, I do think Labour conference in its current form is, is bad for the Labour Party because I think that very 20th century, like you do a deal with this trade union to that thing will be and it's kind of public and there's lots of shouting i just think it's a huge turn off in the age of 24-hour media but it's like could you please cast your mind back to the 2019 and 2018 conferences and the various wrangling over brexit i i genuinely believe that it was much more damaging to jeremy corbyn that he looked like a regular politician over brexit than the actual content of what labor's brexit policy was was damaging to Jeremy Corbyn, it destroyed his, his air of distinctiveness and he became you know, just another Labour politician. But I do think the main difference is, is just the Conservatives are the least democratic party and therefore when they are split, it tends to play out at a parliamentary level rather than it playing out on the floor of their conferences. Whereas, you know, we shouldn't forget, although Lib Dem did have a very successful conference from a media perspective, the highlight of, of it politically was essentially the young membership and the liberal reform, which are, this is a very broad generalisation, but essentially the kind of orange booky bit, teaming up and going... We think the NIMBY campaigning in Chesham and Amersham was disgusting and we're explicitly passing policy designed to like don't do that again kind of measure. Those divides exist in the Tory party, but you ain't going to see them on the conference floor. Yeah, I think this is a really good question because it's something that came up among delegates and members and MPs. Lots of people saying that they kind of wish that they didn't have to do that kind of 20th century wrangling over rule changes and these dirty deals and things and that, that, that they think it's sort of embarrassing and doesn't look good. But I suppose I don't think it's really true in the case of the Lib Dems that that's multiple parties in one. And same with the Conservatives, even though there are distinct traditions within those and different disagreements. I think it is broadly true that one side did kind of win in 2019. And so even though 
different traditions remain in the current Conservative Parliamentary Party. They're sort of not as obvious under Boris Johnson. Everyone's sort of behind him, thinks he's a winner for now. Whereas I think that it is just true with the British Labour Party that you have different distinct left traditions all under one umbrella and those divisions look more bitter and more obvious and come to the fore because parts of the left are quite concerned about purity and to a much greater extent than I think the pragmatism of conservatives in general. And it is just something that has always struck me when you cover other European democracies or speak to people from left parties where they don't just have one big party of the left, that they're much nicer about the other parties on the left because I think they accept that that's a different tradition. So I think that it is actually a fair characterization even though that's not to sort of do down the divisions in the other parties. I think it's a bigger problem for Labour. And also I think it's the way that within Labour people are less willing to just own their differences and say that we have different ideas about how you should run the country. This person is miles to my right or miles to my left. That's fine, we're all in the Labour Party. I think it's this tension where they think that eventually there should be one clear Labour line and they're fighting over what that is. And as long as that fight continues, then you see these quite ugly disagreements. Yeah, I think pragmatism is is a really good word because I, I remember going to cover the Tory associations, like the Tory members, during the leadership election um, after Theresa May was ousted. And what was really interesting is that there was so much disquiet about Boris Johnson, you know, people don't really like him. I know that sounds like a strange thing to say because he won a huge mandate in December 2019. But among the Tory associations where they have committed themselves to the party and they're very interested in the direction that the party will take, there is a lot of reluctance about the fact that they have to pin his hopes on this guy. So it was really interesting interviewing them all and sort of going to the bigger associations and seeing what their main concerns were because they would sort of talk about how he was untrustworthy and sort of they found him kind of tasteless. But they ended up, of course, choosing him. And that there was that pragmatism there. Everyone talks about, well, the Conservative Party can overlook their differences and pick winners for the moment. But I do think that's in the context of your parties in government. So you go along with what's probably best for the party because it's in government. Whereas for the Labour Party, because the party's been in opposition for such a long time, it's more obvious to, if you're on the left of the party, to think, well, something's going wrong with this, whatever you see it as, Blairite consensus, we've got to change it. Or if you're on the right of the party, you think, well, the only time we've been in power was, you know, when we were new Labour and we've got to go back to that. You can convince yourself more that your side or your tradition of, of the party has been sidelined or somehow been left out of the story. And if only you were, were given the opportunity to be in charge, then the Labour Party could be in government again. So I do think there's something about being a winner. And actually, everyone was talking about the strange death of Conservative England when Tony Blair won and the Conservative Party seemed in absolute disarray. So perhaps it's just sort of government goggles and whoever's in charge is seen as less of a divided party or those divisions don't matter as much. So I think there is something in, in all of that. But I mean, you know, looking ahead to a Conservative conference uh, to where we are going depressingly soon, I'm going to be on a lot of panels there. And, you know, when I'm doing a panel with the kind of free market people they will say oh i don't like this don't like them we're doing too much managing the economy but they'll say but you know rishi rishi is sound 
right? And then you'll like do something in like one of the original pro-Brexit things and they'll go, why are we so statist? Or, you know, they'll go, well, the new line has been concerned about the costs of net zero, which is basically now the new socially acceptable way of saying you don't want to do anything about climate change. Um, but they'll go, but isn't Liz Truss a marvellous foreign secretary? Whereas when you're in opposition, right, people will go, oh, he, this is rubbish, this is rubbish. They go, I like the labour market policies or I like the housing commitment. or I'm glad that we're campaigning to get rid of the two-child limit. But the challenge in opposition is basically what your broad message is, right, both for the voters and for the country. Whereas once you're in government, it becomes a lot easier because you can do micro-offers to everyone. Now, the Conservatives face very different ways in different parts of the country electorally, and they face different ways in, in membership terms. But I do, you know, area man desperately justifying his rulebook nerdery, I do think the rulebook stuff is a really important confounder because the crucial thing is is that none of those tendencies in the Conservative Party have any type of veto power within the Tory rulebook, whereas... Everyone in the Labour Party, regardless of how powerful the leader is, has some form of veto power. So it's easier to go along with something if you ain't got no control over it, right? Whereas in the Labour Party, as well, exactly as you say, and it's basically, right, the Tories are a coalition of two European parties, mainstream centre-right, and then the kind of populist UKP, FM, Sebastian Kurdsy, and, and that's about it. Whereas there are about five parties in the Labour Party, and there are about two and a half in the Lib Dems. But yeah, I think all of that, that does come down to the fact the rule book makes it easier for those divides to come from. But government also makes it much easier to do little. Everyone gets a cookie. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.